Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage, where I continue my chat with DJ and impresario Andrew Ball. Last week, Andrew talked to me about his childhood and coming to Hong Kong from England as a young teenager, the son of an army chaplain. He worked for BFBS, British Forces Broadcasting Service, and Radio Hong Kong, and was a cub reporter at Bruce Lee's funeral and the inquest that followed. So if you haven't heard that, it's available on the Hong Kong Heritage podcast. This week, we talk about the disco years. Early discos included the scene at the peninsula, but it was Saturday Night Fever by the Bee Gees that led to a real outbreak of discos here in Hong Kong. And at the top of the league was Disco Disco, a nightclub that was gay-friendly at a time when being gay was illegal. And then there was the legendary Canton Disco, run by Andrew himself. The technology has changed a bit over the years since the 1970s, as Andrew describes as we rejoin his career as a DJ in the 1970s at Commercial Radio. It's a bit dodgy doing, because I mean, the equipment at Commercial Radio was, was like World War II level compared to Radio Hong Kong, where we had the resources of cable and wireless. And even we were using some relatively Cold War era Marconi turntables and things like that. But uh, you should have seen Commercial Radio. I mean, the, the turntables there were the the huge ones that you could play that they were for transcription acetates before tape recorders were invented they had huge platters about two and a half feet across and then if you were recording a one-hour broadcast you had to actually have that a lathe and cut an acetate and you'd play the recording that way so in the 70s they were still using that type of equipment to commercial radio to do non-stop beat mixing was impossible because you couldn't adjust the pitch of the speed of the turntable. So I was faking it a bit, you know, chopping it in and saying, hey, you know, come on, uh, uh, get, let's get dancing. Are you ready to jig? <laughs> do you remember what your commercial radio program was called? Disco Showtime, yes. sponsored by Coca-Cola and Levi's Jeans. Obvs. So did you wear them? Yeah, they did send me a few pairs. My size 34 butt was quite happy to be uh, <laughs> to be swathed in those, no problem. <laughs> and you were drinking Coca-Cola on air? I don't remember getting any free Cokes because it was basically a commercial deal done by commercial radio. So they, they'd sold that slot. I mean, they'd sold every slot, you know. A Shui Hing department store actually had somebody used to come into the studio and you'd do half an hour with what was on sale at Chewy Hing. We're doing a special offer. You had three pairs of socks for the price of two on Thursdays only. And now the Bee Gees. You know, you, yeah. <laughs> and it, it would actually, that would be actually on the radio. And then uh, you'd always have to read the stock market results, you know. Everything was always brought to you by somebody. Because, you know, at a proper radio station like RHK, uh, we used to have the pips that come over, you know. Do, do, do. do you still have the pips? Absolutely. Commercial radio didn't have the pips. You had a machine which you had to press it when it was vaguely the on the hour. You'd go, <laughs> the news on commercial radio. It's uh, and then, yeah, yeah. And if you if you wanted to mess with somebody who was taking over from you on the next shift, you take the battery out of the unit, <laughs> making them laugh, read the headlines. Uh, I think uh, we might still have a bit of Cold War equipment here ourselves. So you've got your disco program on commercial yeah, radio. Well, yeah, yeah that, that was quite short-lived. It was just a series. I mean, we did like 13 shows. 
are you the first DJ or one of the first DJs then that's working at the scene in the peninsula? Actually, no. It was a freak event because I was actually working at a place on Hankow Road called the Yellow Submarine, which was where a whole different crowd used to go. And I used to take photos on a Polaroid camera of the American Marines and the bar girls. I would like put a long track on, like smoke on the water, then go around taking Polaroid photographs and selling them off and making a fortune. with 500 in my pocket every night. So I was doing okay at the sub. Ashton Farley, he was the legendary drive-time DJ. He always had the hottest girlfriend in Hong Kong. Ashton used to play at the scene because in the 60s they had bands and stuff and, and Beth Smith was playing, you know, 60s tracks and stuff. But they, they, they gradually got out of the habit of being a discotheque and they were a live band place. But actually Ashton was the one who persuaded them to go back to DJs. And then on Ashton's night off, John Culkin used to go and do it. And then one day, John Culkin had a date. Why am I not surprised? He asked me if I could stand in for him on that Sunday. So I, I went and did it. And then they hired me on the spot and kicked everybody else out. No worries, mate. <laughs> <laughs> so what was, what was special about your DJing? It was quite electrifying for me. That's all I know. I mean, that first time I played there, it was like kissing somebody for the first time. You think, hang on. You knew that this was going to be quite the relationship between the DJ booth and the audience. And we really had a good empathy. <laughs> One of the things that you do do cite in more recent uh, press about you is the fact that, uh, you know, there, there was a problem through the lack of 12-inch singles and that you were sort of trooping off to America and back in order to get more modern records that didn't exist in Hong Kong. Yeah, I mean, the food and beverage manager at the Peninsula Hotel was the dude. His name is Fritz Sommerau, and he's the guy who gave me the job. I said, look, Fritz, I can't buy records in Hong Kong that I need to get, and I think I need to go to America to buy records. And he said, well, I think that sounds like the sort of thing that Peninsula Hotel should organize. It's sort of the disco equivalent of having a green Rolls Royce. You actually pay your DJ to go buy records in New York. <laughs> so he said, we'll have some of that. <laughs> so I had three trips a year. I would stay on West 44th Street in Manhattan, which was like uh, the punk kind of 76, 77. Punk was big time. And like I would be staying in the Iroquois Hotel on West 44th Street. And like the clash would be in the next two rooms, for example, and things like that. It was just amazing. In the subway station on West 44th Street, uh, you go down the stairs into the subway and there was a record store down there called Downstairs Records. And there was a lady called Yvonne Turner who used to be behind the counter. And she, all the DJs in New York would go to her for the new stuff. So like she would have a box put together for all the famous, like on uh, behind the counter. So Larry Levan would have a box, 
Richie Kayser from Studio 54 would have a box. So she would be the person that all the DJs in New York would go to. She became one of the founders of the house music scene later oh. on. But anyway, Yvonne used to have a box for me. So I was buying the records from Larry Levan. So if you're a disco file, you'd know who Larry Levan is. If you don't, well, you don't. But he was the DJ at the Paradise Garage. And to this day, he's like legend of all god of djs kind of thing so uh, i was actually getting the, the the same records at the same time as larry levan so yes i used to go to new york i was only a teenager or something so who has a job where the peninsula hotel is paying you to go to new york to buy records When you were all starting in 1973, what sort of equipment did you have? Ah, well, at the scene, because disco mixers and variable speed turntables still had not been introduced, and DJs were still sort of being radio guys. So, like, when Ashton was DJing at the scene, he'd be like, hey, ladies and gentlemen, let's slow it down for a moment or two and get to the stylistics, you know, things like that. You, know? <laughs> you are everything. This one's for the ladies. <laughs> That was still going on in nightclubs. It was a bit much. The best hi-fi shop in town, this being the peninsula, naturally we would use them as a vendor. It was called the Radio People on Chatham Road. What an awesome hi-fi shop that was. It was there for years, right next to the Siberian First Store, which is still there. This hi-fi shop was commissioned, and Ashton Farley designed the DJ booth. Oh. I mean, this DJ booth was a work of art. It's when he persuaded them that DJs should be back, and he had, like, some fake flashing lights and a spectrometer which went with the beat of the music, so it looked a bit space-agey. What's a spectrometer? And, and anyway, you know when you send a pulse to us, it looks like you're the captain of a submarine. It's, with a, it's like a green line that dances. It's a bit of a Marconi thing, you know? So he had a couple of those things installed in the booth, just connected to the audio. So it looked as though things were on the slick side. It wasn't just a table with the musical equipment on it in the corner. It was a proper showcase DJ booth. To be driving that was an honor, and you, you better play up to your game. This was not RTHK canteen Christmas party. How long did the <laughs> disco scene last in Hong Kong then? Well, it was pretty intense from when Saturday Night Fever came out, which was bang on when we did the Taipan Club, 78. So Saturday Night Fever was a global phenomenon. And Hong Kong went from having one disco, which was the scene at the Peninsula Hotel, to having like 30 discos run by different classes of people were building discos for people like themselves. So you, you had all shapes and sizes. Can you name some of the key discos of that time then? Certainly. New York, New York, Sam Sam Ba Ba, 3388. That was Cecil Chow's place on Hennessy Road. Quite classy. There was the uh, electric radio in the basement of the Excelsior Hotel, which was opened by Sweet D. He was a lecturer at Hong Kong University, but he used to have a, a weekly show at Radio Hong Kong, dropping the latest funk tunes. He, he was like the quest love of his day, the quest love of Hong Kong. For a few more club names, what became the number one after all of that was Disco Disco. That was truly Hong Kong's Studio 54 moment, curated by probably the guy who was the only guy who's like I could say has been my uh, my greatest boss ever 
uh, Gordon Huthart, amazing guy. And so you were at Disco Disco? Yes. Well, at first, I wasn't sure if it was going to be any good because everything was in Kowloon in those days and there was no Lan Kwai Fong. Nobody ever went to a club in Hong Kong side. You'd have to be out of your mind. And it was just about to open. So he said, I've got this amazing place. I said, well, you open it. And if you're not out of business in a year, I'll come over. But then it was quite obvious from day one, never mind. I didn't have to wait one year. The minute he had his grand opening party, there was nothing in Hong Kong or Kowloon except Disco Disco. It became the number one smash. So I, I, I moved my butt over there relatively fast. So where were you at this point? I was at the Taipan Club at the Miramar Hotel at Chim Sachui, and I, I was also a music director for the group, and they had another one at the Farama Hotel. So what was the key about uh, Disco Disco? What was the ma special sort of magic about it? Well, it was it was curated by somebody who knew what they were doing, and that was not the order of the day in most nightclub openings, which actually is more than true today than it was then. You don't often get a genius opening a nightclub. But this guy was very, very clear about what he was up to. He was responsible for so much in Hong Kong in terms of the change in social attitudes. We still have the SIU anti-gay police unit and all that kind of stuff. I first met him when he was at the scene. He used to come to the scene and deliberately dance with his boyfriend so that they would get thrown out. He was like a gay suffragette of Hong Kong. He'd come to the scene where the manager's job was to make sure that no men danced together. He knew that was going to happen. And his name again? So he came down. Gordon Huthart. So late 76, 77, he came on the scene. He'd been at art college or something in England. His father the amazing Robert Steer Huthart, who's still alive, aged 99. Gordon isn't, unfortunately. His father was basically the uh, owner of like, Lane Crawford Department Store in those days. He's worth a, a Hong Kong remembers story in himself. Oh, yes. Um, disco Disco, one of its primary focuses was being a gay disco. It was gay-friendly. It was Disco Disco was never a gay club. He knew how to create the mix of people, the way he designed the furniture, the way people were able to interact. You could see Kai Bong and Brenda, or you could see somebody from Wafu Estate, you know, shaking their booty. It was a, the most incredibly eclectic mix of people that he curated there. Oh, wow. Kai Bong and Brenda. I met them uh, just before the handover. So they were two lawyers. Yes, that's right. And Brenda, who I believe is still alive, was famous for having a pink Rolls Royce and a gold toilet seat. Right. You know, that famous yes. pair. I so treasure the many photos I have with that couple, me and my wife. I've, I've often aspired to be the new Kai Bong and Brenda, but my wife's not having it. <laughs> Go for it. As you say, at Disco Disco, you've got this marvellous mix of Hong Kong well-known people. But uh... Yeah, and, 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 yeah, I mean, we would have the most amazing parties there. That place was 100% Gordon. The rest of us were part of his master plan, not the other way around. So what kind of music did you play? Basically, a lot of high-energy disco. A lot, I mean, it went through funk. I mean, it, uh, 82 was one of the best years to be a DJ in the world, wherever you were, because the music in 82 was so epic. It was a label called Prelude. Songs like Beat the Street, Sharon Red. What a song that is.
that's 1982. So you're at Disco Disco for that. Approx. So when do you yeah. when do you set up your own Canton Disco? Gordon was getting crazier and crazier, and we had a falling out one day because he started getting paranoid about people stealing records. And I wasn't the only DJ there, but uh, he would have people go in in the afternoon and put a sticker on every record in the DJ booth with the Libra Gold Enterprises, which was the company chop. So I had a bunch of my own stuff that I kept there, and he had them chop my records as though they were the company property. So then I was like, dude, this is my stuff, man. And he was like, no, anything in here is ours. So anyway, we had some kind of ridiculous dispute over this. So I w walked up the stairs and never went back down. And that was about 83. And I opened a record store where the Lan Kwai Fong 7-Eleven is now. You know that 7-Eleven shop on the corner? I opened this record store called Bull's Music Boutique. It was an amazingly iconic store. I was quite influenced by visiting Japan because I used to go to Japan a lot with Gordon. We would go and get inspiration from Tokyo nightclubs. Japan was absolutely incredible in that time of history. And, and so avant-garde for Hong Kong. So I, I brought this sort of Harajuku-style record shop to Hong Kong. But being the world's worst shopkeeper, it didn't last for very long. I realized that if you're a shopkeeper, you have to go to the same place every day and do everything properly every day and then go and do it again tomorrow so what are the chances of me doing that it wasn't quite you no chance <laughs> so yeah shopkeeping wasn't for me but it was an amazing stepping step because it, it allowed me to see hong kong from the point of view of not just being a DJ in a disco, because you met everybody. They came into the shop. And in those days, there was no Alan Zeman or anything like that. It was the pre, I hate to use the word gentrification, but it was the pre whatever Lan Kwai Fong became. We were the originals, and Lan Kwai Fong became what it became because uh, Alan had taken a space uh, in California, what became California Tower later, that space, and he opened California Restaurant. It was quite brightly lit. And there was a window where all the bag ladies dragging cardboard boxes up Lang Kwai Fong would stare in the window while you were trying to eat Caesar salad and a burger in California. And there was all kinds of weird, stressful things that were a bit of a turnoff. So uh, one time I said to Alan, can because me, me and my friend Dick Kaufman, we, we thought we were geniuses in the disco business. So we, well, why don't we do a party? in california and show what can be done so i had a mobile disco system that i put it into california we put paper over the wall so you couldn't see in i turned off the draft beer machine which is making a noise like a, a motorcycle and we put a lot of uv lights in there and uh, a couple of disco lights i dj'd we had a party it was like from that moment on alan saw the light he knew what was possible in that situation and uh, he actually hired Dick Kaufman a few days later. And so we kick-started the sort of nightlife-y bit of Lan Kwai Fong as far as the Zeman Empire is concerned. So when does Canton Disco come about? Well, around about all that same time, the boss of the Taipan Club that I used to work for before I absconded to Disco Disco, he wanted to still have some skin in the game so he came up to the record store one day and he said look hang on a minute bully i've got a site kowloon site come and have a look so i said well let's get on the star ferry because that's what you did in those days 
and we went to Harbour City, which was newly built by Eric Cummin, the famous architect. Me and Tony Law, this guy, Tony Law, he was a, a bartender at the Fontainebleau Hotel in Miami. And the only other Chinese guy used to come in there was an Indonesian Chinese rich kid, and they became buddies. And so anytime Tony wanted to open a nightclub, this guy, his name was T.P. Lim, who was quite okay with the financing. So it was a huge space. It was L-shaped, which is not ideal, but we took that place. We rented it from the Kowloon Wharf and Godown Company, and the rest is history for Canton Disco, yeah. That was next to the Prince Hotel. How long did you have that open? seven years a club like that which was the social network of its day because there was i mean people didn't even have mobile phones really i mean they started to but people had pages or they just didn't have anything you got dressed for dinner and you went out to a club it was how you met other people so i mean you i was just having a look through you i mean you had whitney houston there was pet shop boys you had absolutely tons of well pretty much iconic 80s groups Oh yeah, we certainly did. We had New Order, we had Run DMC, it was Kylie Minogue's uh, first live concert. Eartha Kitt doing live cabaret, which was absolutely incredible. Here I am, the queen of crime. I'm looking for some action. Wanna have a real good time and give you satisfaction. So don't you mess around with me. You won't know what to do. Cause I'll put on my touch of heels and walk all over you. Eartha Kitt doing live cabaret at Canton Disco. With you, I mean, you're you know, doing a lot of disco in that period and, and you kick off in that, in that direction as a teenager. But when do you sort of morph into also, or is it simultaneously into sort of impresario? Because you bring Peter Euston off to Hong Kong a number of times. Basically, when I was running the disco, we started doing international celebrity performances in the club. So that meant I was in touch with people in that industry, agents, agencies, and my telex machine or my fax machine was all every morning you'd have, you know, would you like to consider presenting this such and such an artist? So I kept being offered stuff. I mean, we'd been doing it for seven years. I was discoed out. So I started a company called ICP, International Concert Productions. And our first show was Randy Crawford at the, at the brand new convention center in something like 89. Then we went on to do stuff at Hong Kong Coliseum, the whole nine yards. Oh, Koshan Theatre was one of my favourites because uh, it had like an open-air bit. We did Public Enemy, Maxi Priest, Glenn Fry of the Eagles in in the amazing semi-open-air setting of the Koshan Theatre. They ruined it a few years ago. Now it's some indoor place. I mean, it was not like we didn't go into the Lee Theatre or anything like that. We were not that era. I was Hong Kong Coliseum, Hong Kong Convention and Exhibition Centre, occasionally the Lyric Theatre when I would do Eustonoff. When you met Peter Eustonoff, what was he like? The most amazing human you could ever imagine. He loved spending Christmas and New Year at the Oriental Hotel in Bangkok and at the Phuket Yacht Club. And so he needed an excuse to come to Asia. So like every other year, I booked the Lyric Theatre for four nights, guaranteed to be sold out. 
and he he would do a one man show. It was actually the same performance every night. It's not like a raconteur. He would actually perform the same skits as theater, but it it, it seemed like there was so much going on. You know, you had to see it a few times to take it all in. The one thing I regret was whenever he would check out of his suite, he, he loved staying in the Mandarin Hotel. And whenever he would check out of his suite, uh, he would leave cartoons or you know, he'd, be, he'd be scribbling and amazing bits of uh, ephemera all over the room. But uh, we never collected it up. They were always cleaned up by the house housekeeping. Eustadoff was amazing because you you met a whole different class of person when you're with an artist like that. Like, I mean, he was friends with Governor Wilson's wife because of the Russian connection. So we'd be at Government House afternoon tea. Accordingly, it was Lydia Dunn's birthday at the Mandarin Hotel, hosted by Lord Wilson. Ustinov was guest of honor, accompanied by me. Stuff like that was amazing. We had the pleasure of uh, Diana Ross. She arrived from Indonesia on Garuda, and there was no air bridge. So even though she was in first class or business class or whatever it was, she had to go on the bus with everybody else to get to the terminal. <laughs> Sorry. Not the best look ever. So, like, here's me waiting in the airport you know, with a bunch of flowers and a few media. And then, and then like, we had this stretch limo from the Conrad Hotel, <laughs> and she bursts out of the airport, and she stands on the <laughs> on the running board of the Mercedes and has an impromptu press conference saying it's the worst arrival in any city she's ever experienced in her life. Was she a bit sort of prima donna-ish? <laughs> it was Diana Ross. <laughs> My thanks to DJ and impresario Andrew Bull, talking there on his 50-plus years in music. Unfortunately, his life has been too interesting to fit it all in, so I look forward to rejoining Andrew later this year for more tales from El Toro. Thanks for listening, and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage. <laughs>